listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 245. Today, we're talking about debt, specifically what debt organizing has to do with labor organizing with members of the Debt Collective. But before we get to that and to today's news, a quick reminder that we count on your support to make this podcast possible. Last episode, we celebrated our nine-year anniversary, bringing you labor news, analysis, and guests from around the world to help your organizing. And we can only keep doing that and keep it unpaywalled so that everyone can listen regardless of their ability to pay if those of you who can afford to support us do. If you can, head to patreon.com slash belabored to chip in. And now the news. Nurses at Stanford Healthcare and Packard Children's Hospital in California's Bay Area will be on strike Monday, April 25th, unless they get a last minute deal. The 5,000 or so nurses who are members of the Committee for Recognition of Nursing Achievement, or CRONA, voted with a 93% majority to strike after an ongoing bargaining process that has spanned 13 weeks and amid an ongoing struggle among healthcare workers around the country to create conditions that allow them to retain good workers more than two years into the pandemic. I spoke with Kimberly Reed, a nurse at Stanford Healthcare for over 18 years, about their fight for safe working conditions. Can you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about you and where you work. My name is Kimberly Reed. I am a CV ICU nurse in the cardiac post-surgery unit at Stanford Healthcare. I have been in that unit um, for about 18 years. The patient population itself is very, very sick. Those are the um, cardiac surgery patients that need, I don't know if you guys heard of ECMO, um, CRT, which is an external kidney machine or left ventricular assist device. These patients come out extremely sick. The acuity is extremely high. Um, Yeah, and over the course of the last maybe like three years, I kind of feel as though um, what we've seen is that, you know, you start to see more and more sicker patients, um, meaning that they're hospitalized longer. They're coming in with more comorbidities. So, of course, it requires more nursing manpower and interventions to provide for those patients. And what you see on the hospital side of that is more nurses getting burnt out, overworked. Um, We have been dealing with understaffing like you would not believe. They're using um, large amounts of overtime to compensate for not having the nurses. And again, the nurses care about their patients. They care about the well-being of their coworkers, but it's just not sustainable, right? You know, I've had... um, a couple nurses that work with me who've worked like 14, 12 hour shifts in a row. Like, yes, yes. I mean, and if you really understand the the ICU that I'm in, it's like, we are on our feet nonstop. Those patients are extremely sick. They have, you know, a bunch of IV drips. There's a lot of interventions. It's trips to CT scan. So, you know, to have to do that day in and day out, you have to love it. But then to be tapped with, oh, I don't have a float nurse or, I don't have an NA to help me. You know, it's like everything kind of gets delayed, delayed, delayed. Right. And so um, for the nurses, we just kind of feel as though, you know, we've put in our heart and soul into this hospital for the last, you know, two, three years. Um, I think the pandemic kind of exacerbated the issues that we were having. So, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot right now. Yeah. 
tell us about sort of the process that, that has gotten you up to the strike vote, which um, just to note for our listeners that um, if the strike happens, it will be on April 25th, which is my birthday. So, you know, oh. <laughs> but yeah, so how, right. So how have we gotten to this point? Um, what's bargaining been like? What are the sticking points? So what's bargaining been, has been like, we have actually been meeting with the hospital since January 13th. Okay. Um, and we would meet two days a week. And then in February, we went to three days a week. That's over like 30 sessions that we've met with the hospitals. That is outside of any sessions we've had with a federal mediator. We are still firmly far apart. Some of the key sticking points are retiree medical benefits. They are um, access to mental health and wellness. Um, and not just access to it, we need to have a robust system that actually allows nurses to utilize the benefit. Okay. Um, we are also, it's not just about the wages that is across the board. Everyone gets wages, right? But it is more about being able to access time off for rest and recovery. Some nurses have complained like, I, it's been two years. We have worked so hard. I have not been able to access and been allowed to vacation, right? Another overall sticking point is the ICU incentive. Um, and what that is, is we have had a very hard time, um, or I should say the critical care incentive. We have had a very hard time getting nurses hired into those critical care positions. They are just not out there. But what are we going to do to be able to attract nurses into those positions so we can train them up appropriately, right? And so that's been a sticking point. And then I think the, the biggest one has been the staffing. Staffing is continuously been an issue. We have worked throughout the whole hospital understaffed. Like I said, nurses are doing way more amounts of overtime that is just not sustainable. And I feel like this whole package that we're trying to create is something that will help uh, make it sustainable for future generations, right? Um, we are setting the tone here, not just for the Bay Area, but for the nation. There's a movement going on here. You know, nurses are seeing like we have worked and we are not being valued. You know, yeah. uh, we, we, we know our worth. Mm -hmm. So we need the hospitals to show up and to show us that respect. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the union that you're a member of, which is an independent nurses union. My union is the Committee for Recognition of Nursing Achievement. Um, it was founded in 1966 um, by a bedside nurse at Stanford. Um, during that time, there was only probably about 400 nurses. Um, and this one nurse and her good friend decided we are going to start this union because we want better wage. I mean, it's like when you listen to her story, she talks about how she wants better wages, better working conditions. And I'm going, this is so relevant today, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is so relevant. So yeah, so she started that, uh, the, the nursing union. And since then we have, we are, we're a boutique union that is only between Stanford and Packard hospitals, but we have grown from 400 plus nurses in 66 to now over 5,000 nurses between Stanford and Packard Children's Hospital. Okay. And our main goal here is to just, is just advocacy. How can we support our nurses? How can we stand up for them to make sure that they get what they need in the hospitals when it comes to wages, when it comes to working conditions? Um, we want to let them know their worth and how they're valued. Yeah. So, like I said, the strike date would be April 25th. Um, what are next steps? What are you sort of looking at right now in the time in between 
the strike vote and the, the potential strike? Well, you know, right now, like I said, unless the hospital sometime this week decide, oh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and meet with Krona, our plan is to strike come Monday morning. We have a plan in place. Yes, patients will be taken care of. That is first and foremost to make sure that the hospital has their plan and their contingency in place. But we are planning to strike. You know, what the hospital has not realized is that they've underestimated our nurses and what our nurses want. Our nurses want a sustainable, safe work environment. Over the weekend, we put in a, um, there was a petition that was put up because the hospital had decided to go ahead and stop our health benefits come May 1st. You know, it really is like a tactic, you know, like they thought that they were going to be able to separate it. All that did was just make nurses more, increase their resolve. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that petition right now has over 25,000 votes on it. And, you know, it speaks for itself. Like you cannot use scare tactics to get nurses to fall in line to break a strike. That does not work. Right. So our goal is, yes, we would like to come to a fair and equitable contract and we will continue to meet with the hospitals and hopefully have meetings to discuss how we can get a contract. Right. But if we don't come together or if there is nothing done before Monday, we are going on strike. April 25th, we are walking out and we have 93 percent of our membership who voted that they would walk out with us. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, there have been quite a few nurses strikes around the country. This would be one of the bigger ones with 5,000 nurses, but um, we've definitely been seeing this um, really, I think, escalating during the pandemic mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Um, but what yes. is there anything that you, you've been paying attention to some of these other nurses strikes, I'm sure. Is there anything that you've learned from some of them that, that you're taking forward right now? Um, some of the things that I learned from these other nursing strikes is, um, the solidarity. I feel like not every nurse is able to go out on a strike. You know, not every nurse is in a position to be off work for two weeks a month, but they know that the issues at hand are far more important. They know that if we go out, this is, like I said, it's a movement. They know that there is something that needs to be done to get these hospitals to understand that we can no longer be treated this way. So I feel like the movement is much bigger than the need for me to say, I'm going to keep working in an environment that is putting my myself and my license in jeopardy. Part of the reason, too, I am, like I said, I've been working 18 years. Well, I've actually been in Stanford for 31 years. I worked there in other positions before I became a nurse. But in the last three years, I have developed like heart palpitations from the stress of it, being charge nurse, you know, not being heard, working with little staff. Basically, I feel like putting my license on the line. I cannot do that anymore. Nurses are not doing it anymore. When we say what we need, you need to listen to us. We're not saying that just give us everything we want. What we're saying is come to the table, have the conversation listen to what we need, and let's work out a plan to make it happen. We have said it time and time again. Nurses are tired. They are frustrated. The moral injury is very real. In my unit alone, we have seen such a huge turnover 
of nurses in my department. I can tell you, we've lost a ton of nurses to UCSF and they're going straight to their CVICU, which is so disheartening because I'm like, they're very good nurses. Like we are training nurses to leave us. How do we retain those nurses? How do we reward the nurses that have stayed through the pandemic? How do we do that? It's almost weirdly heartening to hear that there are places that nurses are being attracted to work because it's just, I've heard this story so many times, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at that and you're like, okay, well, they can give them better conditions and safe staffing levels. So why can't we get it? Exactly. It is possible. Excellent. So how can people keep up with um, you and the union as the strike um, potentially goes forward? They can always follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Also go to our website, corona.org, uh, and there's very good information. We keep information up there regarding negotiations process, um, anything happening with the strike. And if anybody wants to come out, we will be out in front of Stanford 500 and 300 P come April 25th <laughs> and with our signs. So um, yeah, definitely look us up on social media. Um, but again, we are, we have a resolve. We are solidified. There's solidarity there. So any way you guys can support, that would be great. That was Kimberly Reed, Stanford Healthcare Nurse and member of the Committee for Recognition of Nursing Achievement. The student workers at Kenyon College have been on strike for several weeks now, and they're going to stay on strike indefinitely. The members of the Kenyan Student Worker Organizing Committee, or CaseWalk, one of several undergraduate student-led unions that have sprung up on college campuses across the country in recent months, have been demanding a union election and accusing the administration of unfair labor practices. Specifically, they say that the administration has tried to declassify community advisors by demoting them from wage-earning employees to workers who are on stipend, which would effectively eliminate their access to minimum wage and overtime regulations, among other things. Currently, the workers on strike include most of the CAs, employees of Kenyon Farm, language teaching assistants, library and information services workers, and writing center consultants. The workers are currently awaiting a hearing with the National Labor Relations Board over the allegations of unfair labor practices and hope to schedule an election in the coming months. I spoke with CaseWalk member Zoe Packel about why she is on strike. This is actually our fourth strike. We went on strike initially in March of last year. And then we did a second strike uh, at the end of the semester last year that was longer, about two weeks. Um, And then we did another one this year in March, um, March 3rd. Um, And then this is our fourth one. So currently this has been going on since um, last Monday. Community advisors, who are basically RAs here at Kenyon, um, started on strike. um, And a majority of them participating. And then apprentice teachers who um, they teach language classes in conjunction with professors. So it's basically, they call them like apprentice teachers, but also like teaching assistants, I think. Um, They've been on strike majority of them since Wednesday. And then on Friday, LBIS workers, which is what I am. I work as a uh, student manager in special collections and archives in our library um, department. We've been on strike since Friday. So yeah, this is our our fourth strike at Kenyon. So for some of us, we've gotten kind of used to it at this point. We joke that like when spring comes, we go on strike, um, which is Kind of funny, but also just because this has gone on so long that Kenyon's given us too many opportunities to go on strike. But uh, this is an unfair labor practices strike. Uh, We started striking because Kenyon changed the way that CAs, again, they're like RAs, community advisors, changed the way that they're paid from a a wage system to a stipend system, um, which also takes away um, their classification as um, legal employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So it takes away a couple of those protections that they had before, like Uh, minimum wage protections and stuff like that. 
Um, and when CAs talked to Kenyon about that, they refused to confirm that Kenyon sees them as legal employees. So that was a cause for concern because they did that after we filed for an election, obviously. So yeah, we CAs started striking as a result of that. And then other workers joined on in solidarity. And yeah, this is just, again, like the fourth installment sort of um, of a movement that's been going on since really April of 2020. Um, we first filed or we first act, asked Kenyon for voluntary recognition in the fall of 2020 um, and then filed for an election with the NLRB in um, October of 2021. So it's it's been kind of a long ride to get here. So with that in mind, can you explain how a uh, casewalk is structured? Yeah. So what we're going for is a wall-to-wall union, which would include all student workers on campus. One of the movements we were inspired by is uh, student workers at Grinnell, who started with organizing their dining hall workers. Um, and now they're actually going to have um, almost a wall-to-wall unit as well. So they've moved from the dining hall workers to that. But we are, yeah, we're again, we're hoping to have all student workers be in our bargaining unit Um our committee is kind of just made up of students from all different workplaces on campus. Um, you know, very much again, like students in charge, students um, running running the organization and the movement and the campaign. But yeah, we we want a wall to wall union, and that's why that is a it's a new premise, especially within undergraduate organizing, which it's in itself is is a new um, kind of union. And you filed for an NLRB election. Is the election date pending at this point? Yeah, we filed in October. Um, Kenyon filed a counter motion to uh, try to delay that. And we're actually still waiting for a, a hearing to be scheduled by the NLRB to um, to deal with that counter motion. And then after that, um, we would wait for, we're still waiting for an election date to be scheduled. So that's kind of the tool that Kenyon's used to try to, to stall this process is to just delay with counter motions. And then, you know, knowing that it's sort of a, a bureaucratic bureaucratic process that has to go through um, where the NLRB has to investigate that. And other um, undergraduate unions ran into that as well. I think um, Dartmouth, they tried to do a similar thing. Um, and it's really just like the NLRB has to kind of go through the motions on those. And um, Kenyon knows that they have to that they have to kind of wait that out or we have to wait that out. And I think part of their strategy too is they're, um, they're hoping that we'll graduate basically in that time that it takes uh, for the election to get scheduled or for even like this hearing that we're waiting for now to get scheduled. I mean, I was going to say that uh, organizing undergraduates seems like it might be even an even bigger challenge in organizing graduate students, given that there's generally sort of a four-year timetable, whereas people are in grad school like forever, basically. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so uh, it's sort of like the clock is ticking, right? I mean, I don't know when you're graduating. Are you about to graduate soon? Yeah, I'm graduating in May, um, so a couple weeks actually at this point. Right. Yeah, and so are you sort of constantly looking for new students to bring into the fold and kind of pass the torch onto? Yeah, we've had a lot of success doing that. Um, there's a lot of freshmen who are really involved, a lot of sophomores, so that's really just heartening to see. Um, kind of again, like proving Kenyon wrong there, where I think they might have the conception that it's just some seniors, some upperclassmen who are doing this, um, whereas we've had a lot of engagement from underclassmen, a lot of people who are really um, interested to learn what's going on. Um, we've also had some good contacts with prospective students. There's a lot of students touring around campus right now who are really interested to hear about what's going on, who have like been following us on social media and stuff, um, who you know may get involved when they get here. Yeah, you could start recruiting high school students like a sports team for. Yeah. <laughs> for um, and are you are you looking to formally affiliate with a larger union um, like UAW or something, or would this be a completely independent organization? 
Yeah, so we're going to be affiliating with, um, hopefully, with United Electrical um, Radio and Machine Workers. So we're working, um, the UE712 local is um, already on campus as the maintenance workers um, who are unionized at Kenyon. Um, so we've been talking to a lot of them. They've been super helpful because they have experience. They went through um, a union recognition process and campaign at Kenyon. Undergraduate unions are sort of picking up steam on, on a number of campuses. Is there something about uh, the current, I don't know, um, what we're going through with the pandemic or just the general kind of uh, political zeitgeist that is kind of leading to this sort of critical mass of undergraduates starting to organize? Yeah, I think um, I think the pandemic definitely sort of set things off, at least for us. A lot of the issues with, within our workplaces were sort of exposed during the pandemic when um, like certain certain student workers weren't being given like health, like health protections. Um, they were expected to like sit at a desk and have people come up to them. And that was, you know, during like the height of the pandemic and there were just no safety restrictions in that respect. I think a lot of undergraduate unions had similar things where it sort of started with trying to get better COVID safety precautions for workers where those had been kind of neglected by colleges um, and then just sort of grew out of that. I think too, definitely like we're seeing um, sort of a national labor movement in general or this moment, right? That like um, seeing places like Amazon unionize and stuff like that, that's just every time one of those comes in, Starbucks, like a new one, it's just really inspiring to, to see for us and to just kind of remind us that we're part of this this broader movement um, of workers, right? And then I think like in higher ed in general, like there's all these graduate student labor movements going on as well. Yeah, I think it kind of, I think COVID sort of started it on a lot of these campuses and then it just sort of snowballed from there where we realized like we weren't being given these basic protections, but we also don't have, um, or we didn't have any like mechanisms in place to like make those issues known or to deal with them on our own. And we kind of just had to, to rely on um, the school, like giving us those concessions or, or making those places safer for us um, without any way to really advocate for it ourselves. And I think at least at Kenyon, a lot of us realized um, seeing that, that we actually needed more of a, a formalized structure to do that and that um, a union would be the best way to do that. And I think that's what happened on a lot of our other campuses too, a lot of undergraduate unions that we've been working with and talking to. Has there been any response from faculty? Um, I I don't know if there are any uh, graduate student faculty at Kenyon. I guess it's a pretty small school, but um, what has the response been from instructors and other faculty? Yeah, we've had a good response from a lot of professors, a lot who have been, um, you know, kind of coming to our picket lines and showing up to our events and stuff, which has been really nice to see. Uh, we don't have any graduate students or, or graduate workers here. Um, but yeah, a lot of professors who... Um, who are the professors at Kenyon aren't unionized. I think um, from what I've read, professor or private institutions, um, professors organizing is actually having maybe a little bit of a moment as well. So, you know, who knows? But um, yeah, a lot of professors who have encountered unions in their professional careers or have been part of one at some point. Um, yeah, I've been really supportive. You know, in this episode where um, our featured interview is actually um, about the uh, student debt cancellation movement. And I was wondering if as uh, someone who's organizing workers on campus, your union has thought more broadly about um, the role of organized labor in an increasingly sort of financialized neoliberal uh, higher education system. And, you know, what you think about how education is being seen increasingly as kind of a commodity. Yeah. Um, one thing that we're hoping to do is really create sort of, I guess, a system for people, um, for workers at Kenyon, um, 
for after we leave as well. So just like setting people up with um, not just like financial tools, but also just like sort of a, almost like a class consciousness of being aware of like the value of our labor and everything going into the world after Kenyon. Um, yeah, I think um, we see a lot at Kenyon of this idea of like, um, of the education being commodified just in that um, it, it feels like a lot of the decisions that Kenyon makes are purely financial or, or at least financial first, right? And I think that we're sort of pushing back on that and trying to sort of change the narrative there that Kenyon actually does owe things to its students, does owe like livable working conditions. Um, and I think that there's also a conception here because this is a private college that like all students here are, are rich and well off and don't need those things, like don't need to work these jobs and everything. And there are people here working, you know, 10 plus hours a week, 20 plus hours a week um, just to stay on this campus. So we've really felt the effects of um, how expensive higher education in general has become. Kenyon just passed um, $80,000 a year for tuition and board. So a lot of people here really rely on their jobs. So that's just made us more aware of like what our labor is doing, both to like help this campus or to allow this campus to run, but also um, how hypocritical it is, I guess, when Kenyon tries to act like we like we're doing this sort of superfluously, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't know if that answered your question. There have been a lot of colleges that have um, sort of, you know, tried to frame themselves as, you know, a progressive institution or to, you know, help hold liberal values and things like that. But then uh, when their students try to organize, they're uh, not so receptive, right? So it does expose these, uh, you know, broader hypocrisies about how higher education institutions behave when it comes to these broader social issues, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Kenyon's main line is that um, that we'd be a third party, that we'd be interfering with <laughs> their relationship with students where um, that's just totally ridiculous. You know, obviously we are the people who would <laughs> be running the union and we're not a third party at Kenyon because we are Kenyon. Um, we're students and we're workers. And they, again, they also try to separate um, and claim that we should be students first and that like Kenyon only employs us to give us these educational opportunities where a lot of us, I, I think most of us in the union, um, are working here because we have to, but also um, this uh, insinuation that like just because we're here to learn or because our jobs have some educational component that we don't need to be represented within them, that we don't need to have these avenues for uh, self-representation um, is is really just a, a tool that Kenyon's using to try to, again, um, make this seem like it's really like not a real labor movement, I think is is kind of ultimately what they're trying to do. If the administration continues to be resistant, how are you going to proceed or escalate? Well, first of all, what we're demonstrating right now is that as much as Kenyon might like to claim that we're that our work is not core to business operations, which is a line that they've used before, um, as a number of us are on strike, a majority in all the shops that are on strike right now, and as that number continues to grow, I think we're just, first of all, demonstrating that that line that they've been using is completely not true. Um, that we are core to business operations and we're core also to just like daily life on campus. Um, the whole community is going to feel the effects of, of why we're on strike and that's unfortunate. Um, so I think uh, the way that we we escalate that is to just keep demonstrating that our work is central to this campus. And um, as more people are signing on to strike, as more people are participating in actions and joining the picket line and just making our presence really visible, I think Kenyans, it's going to find that really hard to um, to ignore and the whole community is going to find that really hard to ignore. And at a certain point, it's just Kenyans going to realize that this is worth, um, that um, fighting us on this is just not worth the cost of it and that they should just um, really get in line with what every other um, undergraduate institution has done in this case. And it's to just let the students vote and have a union. 
And that was Zoe Paco, one of the students who are on strike with Casewalk at Kenyon College. Following in the footsteps of the Starbucks workers and other retail and service employees in recent months, Apple store workers in Atlanta have filed for the first ever union election in an Apple retail facility. These workers filed with the Communications Workers of America, which has made a substantial investment in organizing tech sector workers up and down the sector, from programmers to retail employees and more. Other Apple store workers in New York City are also organizing with Workers United, the SEIU subsidiary that is having such success with Starbucks workers around the country. I'm excited that workers at a Starbucks in my new hometown of New Orleans have announced their union drive. According to the union, about 100 workers at the Apple store at Cumberland Mall in Northwest Atlanta are eligible to vote in the election, including salespeople and repair technicians, and that over 70% of them have signed authorization cards indicating they support the union. The store workers told reporters that they were denied the level of respect given to Apple corporate headquarters employees and often denied the ability to progress within the company. We want equal to what corporate actually gets, Sidney Rhodes, one of those workers, told the New York Times. The Times also noted, quote, activism and labor organizing at Apple have been building since last summer when discontent over the company's plan to require employees to return to the office snowballed into a broader movement called hashtag Apple II. That movement aimed to highlight workplace problems like harassment, unequal pay, and what workers described as a culture of secrecy that pervaded the company. The retail employees, like so many workers, have faced the challenge of being pushed to go back to work in person without reasonable protections, and the spread of Omicron pushed organizing at the stores to another level, with walkouts coming last Christmas in protest over working conditions. It's worth noting, too, that while Apple retail workers may have second-class status within the company, they are on the higher end of the retail pay scale in the U.S., and the store itself is, like Starbucks, positioned as an aspirational lifestyle brand. That workers at these stores are having successful union drives after years of being told that they weren't like those other retail or fast food workers is telling us something about the workplace today and about the potential for organizing to spread across the economy. It's also telling us something about work and pandemic times, when people who might otherwise have looked at their service sector job as at least one of the better ones in that field, one that might be worth keeping even if some things were not great, are starting to refuse to see things that way, to unionize and to walk out. Also, of course, the massive publicity gained by the Starbucks and now Amazon labor unions victory in Staten Island is going to reach workers who might not have thought of themselves as needing a union previously. Which is all to say, good luck to the Apple store workers in Atlanta, not really a union town, and New York, which of course is a union town, and to all of you around the country, we'll be watching. One of the tried and true tactics deployed by professional union busters is the captive audience meeting, in which workers are called into meetings during work that are aiming to educate them about unions. In reality, these meetings are platforms for anti-union propaganda, courtesy of the boss, usually delivered by anti-union consultants. Workers are compelled to listen and watch as they are told repeatedly about how unions are bad and scary and will take their money and endanger their jobs, etc., etc., Studies indicate that these meetings are used in about 90% of union drives to deter organizing efforts, and they often succeed. That's why organized labor has been calling for them to be outlawed. And recently, National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo issued a memo that could help shift the political ground for unions who are desperately trying to reverse the steady decline in union membership over the past few decades. Abruzzo wrote in the memo that she believed forcing workers to attend such meetings should generally be considered an unfair labor practice. 
and that she would, quote, urge the board to hold that in two circumstances, employees will understand their presence and attention to employer speech concerning their exercise of Section 7 rights to be required. When employees are, one, forced to convene unpaid time, or two, cornered by management while performing their job duties. In both cases, employees constitute a captive audience, deprived of their statutory right to refrain, and instead are compelled to listen by threat of discipline, discharge, or other reprisal, a threat that employees will reasonably perceive even if it is not stated explicitly, unquote. Section 7 here is a reference to workers' basic right to organize unions. The idea here is that these meetings are inherently coercive and therefore unlawful. Essentially, the debate over captive audience meetings pits the supposed free speech rights of the employer against the employee's right to organize and be free of coercion. The PRO Act, a comprehensive bill to overhaul labor law, would outlaw these meetings altogether. But since that legislation seems to have stalled in Congress, an intervention by the currently Democrat-controlled NLRB could be a game-changer. Abruzzo stated that finding captive audience meetings, quote, to be unlawful is therefore necessary to ensure full protection of employees' statutory labor rights, unquote. In a 2009 study by the Economic Policy Institute, which focused on a sample of organizing drives that led to union elections from 1999 to 2003, researchers found that anti-union captive audience meetings were used in the lead-up to 90% of the elections, and also found that in the majority of cases, supervisors held one-on-one meetings with workers in which they interrogated or threatened employees. In addition, quote, employers threatened to close the plant in 57% of elections, discharged workers in 34%, and threatened to cut wages and benefits in 47% of elections, unquote. And the use of these dirty tactics has intensified over the years. In elections that followed the drives in which no captive audience meetings were used, unions won 73% of the time. But in elections in which workers had been subjected to captive audience meetings, the union win rate was just 47%. If the NLRB manages to outlaw these meetings, that could be one major step in undoing the stranglehold that bosses now have over workers' access to information about unionization. That could open up new opportunities for unions to truly educate workers about their rights, encourage them to organize, and to vote freely and fairly. More than 45 million people across the U.S. are shackled to a mountain of roughly $1.75 trillion in education debt. That is the price they paid for going to college or getting a postgraduate degree. At the start of the pandemic, Congress suspended payments for student loan debt, and two years on, there is a growing call across the country for total cancellation of all student debt. While student loans are often associated with college-educated professionals, education debt has led to financial instability for millions, disproportionately burdening blacks and women, potentially sinking prospects for things like home ownership, starting a family, or saving for retirement. With the May 1st expiration date approaching for the pause on student debt payments, the Debt Collective, which has been organizing for the abolition of all forms of financial debt for over a decade, is stepping up its campaign to cancel all student loans now. The Biden administration has offered piecemeal reforms to provide relief to a small portion of borrowers, but debt abolitionists are urging Washington not only to wipe out all student debt through executive action, but also to make college free for all so that future students won't need to get indebted to get educated. We spoke with two organizers with the Debt Collective, Amy Schneider, who is also a debt striker, and Eleni Shermer, whom Sarah and I have worked with as a contributor to Dissent. She is now a research associate at the University of California, Los Angeles. 
I started out by asking Amy how she got into the movement to abolish student debt. I started my involvement with the Debt Collective in 2015. Um, I actually graduated from a for-profit college, um, one of the Illinois Institute of Art, which was part of the Art Institute's Um, which was uh, owned by Education Management Corporation, EDMC. They had been sued for $11 billion um, for fraud. And I think 20-something attorneys general also partook in the lawsuit. Um, And they settled for $93 million. So they got a slap on the wrist. They didn't have to have any admission of guilt. Um, And this was during the time that I was enrolled. So I graduated in 2010. Um, I kind of felt like the school was a scam. I was like, this isn't right. This is not what education is supposed to be. Uh, So I kind of went on a debt strike on my own before I got involved with the Debt Collective. And I had been writing to my state senator, Dick Durbin. Um, At the time, my attorney general, Lisa Madigan, I uh, wrote to her. Um, But it it really wasn't getting anywhere. Um, And then in 2014, I started hearing about the Corinthian 15 from um, the Everest Wyotech campuses um, and... uh, the situation that they were in and the fraud that they experienced was very similar to what we were experiencing um, at the Art Institute, the same sort of enrollment uh, practices, predatory recruitment. So uh, a couple of us had been organizing online um, on Facebook in a group called IMAI, so former Art Institute students, um, and that an article got shared about the Corinthian 15, and a couple of us decided that we were going to reach out to the Debt Collective. So we sent emails and um and this was 2015. And we got an email back saying, hey, we hear you. We know that this is definitely not just isolated to one college chain. This is definitely happening at multiple different colleges. Um, and then they they stepped in and they offered to uh, help us um, learn about how to fight like the Corinthian 15 were. And in 2015, I joined up and I officially went on strike as a collective instead of just doing it on my own. Um, Right now, uh, my involvement is um, a co-chair for the Chicago uh, Debt Collective chapter. Um, And I was recently, uh, for April 4th, in D.C. for the April 4th Pick Up the Pen Day of Action. And so I am going to continue to fight until we get the debt canceled. And uh, that's kind of, yeah, where I'm at right now. And Eleni, can you talk about how you approach this issue as an organizer, as well as someone who thinks a lot about labor issues? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually got, um, you know, my my point of entry into the debt collective was through labor struggles. And just, you know, I was cut my teeth in the public sector labor movement in Wisconsin in 2011 and became very well versed in a lot of the limits that the walls that, that labor movements were running into left and right. And it was sort of COVID that exposed to me, the just how much debt is just so crucially tied up with with labor issues and with labor power. That from an individual point of view, that folks, you know, our paycheck we we go to work <laughs> to earn dollars to be able to pay off debts. And from institutional points of views, that a lot of times institutions and in public sector, this is sort of the the work that I have been doing is that public sector institutions are oftentimes because of you know regressive taxation are totally underfunded and have to themselves debt finance to keep their doors open. And as a result, uh, they have to set in the case of education institutions, set tuition very high and oftentimes use student tuition dollars as collateral for the debt that institutions are in. And then also 
depress workers' pay in order to be able to pay off creditors. So it just became very obvious to me how much the mechanics and the logics of debt were just really embedded into a lot of the kind of like key labor fights that I had been involved with. And I, you know, over in the course of the last six months, I've stepped into an organizing role with the Debt Collective and been really involved with sort of you know, we're at this moment now where we have never been this close to full student debt, to to any kind of student debt cancellation. You know, that Amy is really sort of a movement elder in a lot of respects, is that when this was first on the table 10, even five years ago, um, there was not a mass movement for debt cancellation. And now the question isn't, you know, whether or not to cancel student debt, but how fa- how much and how fast <laughs> will it be canceled? Um, so that's really exciting. And, and there's, you know, that is the product of organizing. It's the product of, of the, the, the debt collective and the movement for black lives, um, for, you know, the, the, the strikers that Amy mentioned, uh, organizers like Amy uh, and folks that, that other folks who are really been working in and around the debt collective. So where the campaign is at now is that, on April 4th, the Debt Collective had a mass action in Washington, D.C., but also with sort of satellite events across the country from Boston to Portland, um, calling for Biden to use the powers vested in him um, as president of the United States to, to sign an executive order to cancel all of the federal student debt. On April 5th, <laughs> The president issued another pause to the student loan moratorium that has been um, is this is actually a Trump, a President Trump policy to pause student debt under the auspices of covid um, to sort of do no financial harm to borrowers. The student debt has been paused. Interest has not been accruing for the past two years. Um, And in December, when the president, when Biden issued the last extension of the pause, he made a big fuss about this was the final time he was going to press pause on this policy. This There was going to be no more extensions. When the payments were set to turn on on May 1st, that was it. That was it. And what do you know, on April 5th, the administration came forward and said, well, it turns out we're not going to restart the payments again. So so we are living under yet another moment of kick the can, uh, ruling by kicking of cans. Um, And on August 31st is when the the payment pause is is set to, quote unquote, finally expire. And we believe that we have a window right now where we can really push the needle with mass organizing to to really make cancellation a political reality. And to, you know, we, we take the position that once a dollar has been canceled, um, the floodgates are open and it will become even easier for, for the next rounds of cancellation to come. Because there's been this pause on student debt payments during the pandemic, do you think that has um, made full-on cancellation uh, more of a political possibility, um, at least sort of in, in the eyes of Washington politicians? Or, um, or has it sort of just thrown things more into limbo? The interesting thing about the pause is that the power that's allowing um, the moratorium to continue is the same power that would allow us to have full debt cancellation. It's the exact same uh, provision of the 1965 Higher Education Act that has allowed that to happen. 
and interestingly, there was actually a whole uh, report um, that was almost fully redacted about Biden's ability to cancel student debt. Um, and that hasn't been um, unredacted or anything because he does have the power to cancel student debt. Um, I think that with COVID, um, having that pause really shows how much cancellation would benefit people in their day-to-day lives. We're able to actually, you know, pay our bills. People are able to function. I mean, a lot of us are still barely functioning. Um, You know, we're still barely making ends meet. Um, And that's with the pause on the student loans. I think that restarting payments on student loans would put a lot of people in a really, really bad place, especially now that the child tax credit has been repealed and that we don't have public programs to help people who are still struggling. after the pandemic. Um, I mean, we're still in the pandemic uh, as much as society is now pretending it's over, but we don't have the finances. I don't know how we can start, especially when we haven't been paying for this long. Has the pause um, actually helped in terms of your outreach and your organizing? Um, I mean, has it made debtors realize that, that their loans are, you know, has it made anyone question, like, why have I been paying this the whole time now that there's been this pause and they've seen how their lives have changed? I think absolutely. I think we're seeing tons of energy. I mean, this is a really popular issue for a lot of reasons. One is exactly as you said, is that, you know, this has just really proven the point that folks, you know, debt abolitionists have been making the whole time, which is this debt does not need to exist. And the federal government has just kind of proven this point on a mass scale. Um, that that debt abolitionists uh, have been calling for for you know for for de- for a decade. So I think it absolutely is generating enthusiasm. The other thing too that's happened is that you know student debt right now is kind of the last horse in the progressive, uh, you know, in, in in sort of the progressive hope chest in this sort of like Biden bleak landscape that that you know build back better has been sort of nixed as amy mentioned the child tax credits are are you know like sort of a, a disaster that we've we see voting rights being subverted and right now um there's enthusiasm because of the pause and also because of all the other policy failures of the biden administration is that student debt is carrying a lot of progressive hopes and dreams it kind of shows where this country is in a way. I mean, we're, we're not, it's not even asking for that much. It's just asking for the absence of this crushing financial burden <laughs> that's been on people's shoulders. I mean, it's not asking for any special relief necessarily, other than just the ability to be free of this lifelong financial shackle. And I mean, I think this is something, you know, this is Amy, Amy mentioned this, but this is, even two years ago, the fight was, there was a real, we had real horses in the race for not only full student debt cancellation, but also for college for all legislation that in 2019, there was actual legislation on the table for free public higher education. And we have had to, you know, we couldn't even get free community college on the table this round. So it's really a backtracking of a lot of, of sort of what the, the, progressive agenda that we all want and know needs to be exercised where this is kind of just the last little thread that's hanging on um, that, you know, we're, we're very aware with in the debt collective that student debt cancellation is really only half of the half of the, the, the problem that we need to call for full cancellation and then fully funded federal public reparative higher education that is free for all. 
I remember a few years ago um, when the debt strike campaign was, there was a lot of focus on uh, for-profit colleges and this idea that, you know, many students had been victims of fraud, essentially. And if no other action was taken on student debt, then at least uh, we could provide some financial relief to people who had effectively been victims of this for-profit college swindle. There were lawsuits. Um, has it been harder, I guess, to to expand from this idea of targeting for-profit colleges, specifically to the idea of uh, abolishing student debt in general um, for everyone? I went to a for-profit college. I still have my student debt despite um, having, you know, my school being sued for billions of dollars. Um, but one thing that I've like really learned through um, organizing through the debt collective is that the for-profit colleges really are just a symptom of a much, much larger uh, problem that is uh, higher education as a whole. Um, effectively, community colleges and state colleges are being run with a for-profit model. Um, so tuition has been increasing exponentially at state colleges. Community colleges are now out of reach for a lot of people um, because they are basically just trying to get the tuition um, you know, to for investors because investors are now heavily involved in uh, public education. And we're also uh, heavily subsidizing public education. Um, so it's not being seen as a public good. And there's also... Uh, the repeal of bankruptcy protections also has affected tuition. Um, so there's just very uh, many factors um, for why tuition is as high as it is. The for-profit colleges kind of exposed the model, but really when you start to look at it, public colleges are kind of operating on the exact same sort of model and higher education as a whole really does need to have a complete overhaul. And I really think that that's through canceling the student debt that didn't even exist a few decades ago, and then moving back to that publicly funded model so that we actually have people able to go to school without taking on mortgage-sized debts and then being in debt for the rest of their lives just because they wanted to go to college. Student debt seems sort of like a function of this, this increasingly kind of hollow belief in social mobility and this idea that, you know, college degree kind of represents deferred compensation um, and that those wages will eventually be paid off down the line and that people who are in debt temporarily will be able to sort of redeem everything in the end because they will get that career with their degree, right? When you talk to people about this movement, um, how do you try to, I guess, sort of puncture some of those myths? Well, I'll say two things. One is that we have a, there's sort of a, a, a saying, a phrase that gets kicked around in the debt collective a lot that I think is is pretty powerful and, and sums up a lot of this, which is that we we have a we we say that people aren't in debt because they have lived beyond their means. People are in debt because they have been denied the means to live. And I think that kind of reframing that people are in debt, not because of some kind of wishful thinking, but because of, you know, a lot of the, the, the causes of debt are our health care, our education, our housing. And in, in, in increasingly, people are go into debt to pay for their own unjust incarceration. So um, I think sort of keeping that sort of the the really the the center of the analysis of the work that we're doing is that this is not, you know, Debt isn't a moral shortcoming. It's a it's a function of a of an unjust political economy. And I think for it's not it's not really very difficult in most cases. I mean, a lot of it's not this. Most people it doesn't pass the common sense test that they are paying, you know, tens of thousand dollars a year to maybe get a job that will make them forty thousand dollars a year if they're lucky with a union and benefits. That's like the gold standard. 
which is, I think, increasingly where we're starting to see a little bit of a turn now that the, this, the calls for student debt cancellation are starting to kind of mature and become more and more legitimate, that we're starting to see an uptick of this coming from a demand from within unions, because this is truly a labor issue that, that student debt is, is, is our future wages. And the fact, the reason why in some cases this, the, this, the premise of debt doesn't make sense is because wages don't justify the, the, the education expenses. And so the fight for debt abolition, I think, is really central to, to labor struggles. So the more that these two movements can, can be working together, I think the, the stronger these arguments become. You know, talk about the communities that are the most impacted. This is an issue that undermines a lot of the economic prospects for a broad swath of working class people in this country, right? Particularly communities of color. Yes, can you talk about how that fits into the agenda of both the movement to cancel student debt and I guess the ethos of the debt collective more generally? Right now, um, women hold the majority of student debt. Um, in particular, Black women are the most uh, disproportionately impacted by student debt. So it definitely is um, an issue that is very much centered uh, in the overall racist history of this country. Like we have a lot of uh, discrepancies between who has and who has not. Um, even with education, um, tuition is meant to keep people out. It's meant to, you know, be a barrier for people moving up in their lives. It's and if you do happen to go to school, you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life for going to it. So when you have statistics that are showing you who is impacted most by the debt, it's really easy to see um, how all of these different movements are intersecting and why it's so necessary um, for intersectional work to be done around it and why coalition building is so important. Um, when I first started with the Debt Collective, I think our first protest had like 15 people. Uh, we didn't have coalitions there. Um, I think we might have had uh, the New Orleans DSA might have been there. Um, but it wasn't anything like what we had on April 4th, where we had 50 plus organizations coming together to actually fight this issue, tackle this issue. Yeah, I think Amy said it perfectly. I think here's what debt is. It's a, it's a, it's a poverty tax. The people who have the least end up paying the most, whether it's for a college degree or for a house or for whatever. Um, and we, that is a, you know, what debt shows us is it's the inverse of the side of the racial wealth gaps um, and, and disparate distributions in, in terms of uh, access to wealth. In, and also it's a function of the of wage disparities too, where, you know, black women make the least money cents on the dollar relative to white men. It takes more hours to, to earn the same amount of money, um, which is part of the reason why the debt accrues uh, more and more interest and ends up with, in the case of higher education, a college degree for, you know, a low income black woman is going to end up costing that same degree is going to end up costing more for a low income black woman than it would for a wealthy white male to think about this idea of debt as an issue that impacts poor people, folks of color, women the most, makes me think about the way this issue has often been framed by critics, which is this will only benefit wealthy people, or you would just be doing something that ends up you know, favoring a relatively elite class of people, i.e. people who have been to college. So how do you answer some of those criticisms like, oh, I paid off my student loans and you should too. Well, first of all, the idea that sort of 
this is a benefit for rich people is just total bullshit. Rich people don't have student debt. <laughs> rich people pay for college uh, out of trust funds or checkbooks. Um, and it's, you know, debt is, you only take it on if you didn't have enough money to cover the initial expense to begin with. So I think that is just sort of like gets misconstrued a lot. And it's just frankly not, you know, I think sometimes there's this idea of like, well, maybe poor people have some debt, but they only will have a little bit of debt. And and it's really, it's wealthy people. It's only doctors and lawyers who have, you know, six figure debt, student debt burdens. And that is just like plainly not true. Um, just absolutely not true that you don't need to have a six figure income to have a six figure uh, debt burden. And then the issue of like, well, why, what's the sort of why should we do this? There's already people who have paid back their student debt. This problem needs to come to an end. We wouldn't not advance medical research um, and treat cancer patients simply because past people have died from cancer. Um, we, you know, the suffering needs to stop. And it's terrible that people have, you know, had, you know, endured lifetimes of, of living in debt. Uh, that's absolutely terrible. And it shouldn't have happened to them. And it shouldn't happen to people going forward. And for folks who are concerned about that, I welcome them to get on the train to fight for full student debt cancellation, and then free college for all so that this doesn't, you know, we can really make sure that that, that this problem does not continue. There was actually a study, a 10-year study from the Levy Institute of Economics on um, what student debt cancellation would actually do for the economy. And it was shown that it would significantly boost the economy by giving people the buying power to invest back into their communities. And it would free up just a ton of money for people to start businesses, buy homes, etc. Um, so the idea that people would be negatively or adversely impacted because student debt was canceled isn't actually fact. Um, because people having buying power, that goes back into your community. When you're paying into student debt, who does that debt serve? Really, when you think about it, it's not serving you as you know a taxpayer, which student debtors are also taxpayers. Um, it's not serving you and, and your community. It's not serving anybody but investors when we pay the debt. So Canceling student debt would definitely help people, even people who don't have student debt. When you start to question what does the debt serve, who does the debt serve, and why wouldn't you rather have that reinvested back into your communities, it does kind of start to get people more open to listening to your perspective and listening to the facts of the matter and being more open to the possibility of cancellation. When thinking about the financialization of higher education and how that ends up screwing over students, as well as often the people who work in higher education, the same process that we've seen with financialization of higher education as a consumer good has also translated into like the adjunctification of faculty, for instance. So can you talk about the higher education as an industry and maybe how debt cancellation and, uh, and I guess, free college for all more broadly would change kind of the political economy um, within the higher education system and maybe um, make it a more equitable place to work as well. My co-chapter organizer with the Chicago chapter was an adjunct. She recently um, has decided to leave uh, working as an adjunct um, because in the higher education system, adjuncts are really treated terribly. Um, they're often uh, overworked, long hours where they're not even being paid for a lot of work that they're doing, um, the prep work that they don't get paid for um, outside of classroom hours. And a lot of that is, again, just to keep on that profit motive, uh, you're paying adjuncts way less than you're going to pay a tenured professor. 
Um, so that definitely plays into the financialization of higher education when your adjuncts have to take on second, third jobs just to uh, pay their bills and put food on the table. You're really losing out on a lot of talented people um, who could be working in higher education. People who would be passionate about the field are leaving the field because they just simply cannot make ends meet. If we had you know, cancellation of student debt, a lot of those adjuncts wouldn't have to pay their student loans at least. Um, so that would free up a little bit of room. But I don't think that people should have to work as adjuncts personally. I think that people should have a path to being a, a tenured professor and working um, with benefits and having those benefits. I think that the fact that so much of the uh, college course load is offloaded onto adjuncts is just another further symptom of how broken higher education is. Amen. I mean, I think understanding also that institutions themselves increasingly are in debt. That debt gets passed on to students in the form of higher tuition, which becomes future student debt. And one of the conditions that happens with indebted institutions, you know, this is like, uh, it's not a very sexy topic, but it is kind of, uh, I've increasingly come to see it as really one of the heartbeats of the austerity agenda of the financialization of higher education is that it puts creditors, private financial firms and credit rating companies in sort of very critical positions. They set a lot of the institutional priorities where institutions oftentimes budget years in advance how much they will pay back creditors for money that they borrowed at the same time that they are, you know, cutting programs, furloughing workers, increasing the adjunctification of the instructional staff. Um, and and this is this is sort of by design. The 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 Moody's, one of the preeminent credit rating agencies, actually considers one of its factors is that the stronger the tenure protections are <laughs> of a of a university or the stronger the labor force the the stronger the 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 more unionized and the more militant that union is on of a of a university the lower the credit rating is um which then sort of makes the university have to borrow more and pay more money and in interest to banks so it really becomes like a pretty um i think it's 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 very incumbent on on labor unions to understand to, that this this struggle, you know, is for for debt abolition is is very central to the to the workings of, of our universities, um, and the fight for student debt cancellation is is absolutely the fir- the first place to start. What you said about um, unionization being seen as kind of a uh, financial black liability, is, yeah, is interesting. Um, can you talk more about the work that the Debt Collective does with organized labor and how they have come around to see this as an issue that should be on their agenda as well? Well, the, I mean, I will say, first of all, that the Debt Collective is itself a union. It's an experimental union and a union of debtors, um, which actually is probably a lot of workers uh, are by f- virtue of the fact that we have to sell our, our labor in the first place puts us sort of in the in the red to begin with. Um, so so there's that that, you know, the Debt Collective is is in and of itself operating as a as a, a union but you know in i think as this fight for student debt cancellation has matured it's become part of the radar of of, of organized labor so we're beginning to see um, for example CTU the Chicago Teachers Union sort of the gold standard of what a labor union can do just recently passed a resolution calling for full student debt cancellation as did the Los Angeles Teachers Union Teachers understand that that you know many teachers go into tens of thousands of dollars of debt to get 
you know, bachelor's and master's degrees to get teaching credentials um, and make, you know, don't go into teaching with the plans. It's not a debt servicing career, which is to say that we're beginning to draw in support from organized labor who are passing um, that what we're sort of asking, the strategy that we're running right now is to try to get as many unions as possible between now and July uh, to, to pass resolutions calling for full student debt cancellation. Uh, this is a matter of increasing take-home pay uh, and in, in unions' interest. So if this is um, something that if you're a member of a union or, or close to, a, to folks in unions, um, feel free to reach out uh, to, to us at the Debt Collective to, to bring this forward as a conversation. I think we know that Biden is kind of romanticizes an idea of, of unions, and, and we have reason to believe that if this demand for full student debt cancellation starts to come from unions and, and begins to be rightly seen as the working class issue that it is, um, that it will strengthen the demand for, for more cancellation. And I imagine a lot of teachers unions would be for debt-free higher education because this is also their students' futures that they're talking about, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. There have been a number of lawmakers who have come on board and also called for canceling student debt. Do you feel like the conversation has changed a lot in Washington lately? And is it really all just sort of riding on what the executive branch can do? I mean, or... Can Congress do something about this? What are some of the avenues towards changing policies so that there is a path forward, not just for debt cancellation, but tuition-free education as well? So I started organizing with the Debt Collective in 2015. Um, The first action I did, um, the articles that came out about it were pretty negative. Um, It was pretty pie in the sky, not going to happen, was kind of the response that we were getting. Um, but since I joined and started organizing with the Debt Collective, we've had over a billion dollars in debt from for-profit colleges canceled already. We've completely changed the conversation um, to make it not just some far out there idea and concept. Uh, it's way more mainstream now. Um, we had two presidential candidates that were very prominent in their support for canceling student debt in our last election cycle. Um, we've had uh, politicians, um, Congress uh, women who have put out uh, college for all bills and cancel student debt bills. Um, so definitely the conversation has shifted tremendously um, just since 2015 when I joined up with the Debt Collective. Even back then in 2016, I went to a negotiated rulemaking um, session for for-profit colleges for the bor- uh, borrower defense to repayment, um, which is basically uh, a way to assert um, that you're college defrauded you um, and to try to get your debt canceled through that sort of a policy. Um, And in 2016, even that was seen as, you know, an out there kind of an idea, even for us who had been clearly defrauded. Um, So to see the amount of positive uh, feedback and, um, you know, people really getting on board with it um, has been tremendous to see because it just proves that organizing does work. It's taken an immense amount of pressure to get where we are today, and it's going to take an immense amount of pressure in the next couple months um, to see cancellation happen. But I believe in the power of organizing because I've seen it work, um, and I think that that's all that we can do is just keep organizing, keep pushing. Um, and as far as executive order versus Congress, um, I don't really trust Congress to do the right thing as a whole. Um, I've been in this fight now since 2015 as a for-profit college person who, you know, clearly was defrauded and I still have my debt. 
So if I still have my debt, what makes me, you know, think that anything's going to change through Congress? Right now, Biden has the power to eliminate my debt and everybody else's who is suffering right now with the debt. Um, and on a large scale, 45 million Americans with $1.8 trillion in debt, an executive order just is the way to go. The Biden administration just announced that it would be making some reforms to something called the Income Driven Repayment Program. So can you explain what that is? And is it real debt cancellation? Or is it something very different from what Debt Collective is proposing? I'll start by saying that the income driven repayment plan as it exists is sort of wildly bureaucratic and dysfunctional. <laughs> and the plan, this the the sort of the program that the White House announced yesterday to fix it doesn't really address the scope of the problems with the plan. And and I'll say that the income driven repayment plan is is this sort of program that was rolled out in I think 1992 that was supposed to help people sort of adjust their payment schedule, make lower payments while earnings were low. And the theory being that eventually people, you know, you're, you're not making that much right now. You're in a hard spot with your jobs. Um, you can lower your payments uh, without having to default or, you know, go delinquent on your, on your payments. And this program will kind of be the bandaid that, that keeps you sort of financially in the system. Um, well, it turns out the program has been just sort of a, a, a basically since its beginning a, a, a massive problem and failure. Um, what we're seeing now is you know that the people there's really no record. There's no record of all the payments that people have made through this program. So um, the theory is is that after so many payments, you can get your debt forgiven, quote unquote, forgiven or canceled. Um, in reality. What there was a, a a study by the the government accountability office that just came out that reveals that in reality since 1992, 154 people, 57 people have ever had their <laughs> their loans canceled through this program, which is wild to think about. There are millions of people who would qualify for this program, and a hundred of them um, have actually sort of been able to take advantage of it the way use it the way it's it, the program claims to work so in 38 right in over the course of yeah right 20 or 25 years you can potentially like get your balance to zero well it doesn't really work that way and there's all these problems with it which is basically that that nobody really knows how much people are paying or where it's like it's like you know you borrow money from someone and you pay them back but that person hasn't been keeping track of your payments so but they're still telling you to pay you back that's basically what this what this whole system is so what the white house announced yesterday was this waiver that is i don't totally understand but i think they're going to kind of try to start counting in back months to qualify for this payment. You know, you have to make it, I can't remember exactly how many months of payments it has to be, but 20 or 25 years of payments. And so there, this, what the White House announced was there's going to, they're going to make some changes in basically how they're going to start counting these payments. But the problem is, is that they actually just, the, the access to this data is actually really bad. And they, um, they don't really know <laughs> how many payments people have made. So it's not a, the scale of the problem is much, is just massively bigger than the fix. And even the White House's own numbers that they're saying is like, this is going to help 40,000 borrowers. Well, that's kind of cute. I mean, and it's, it's no, it's no, you know, 40,000 people who are being, 
having their lives sort of taken off the edge of the financial cliff is nothing to, to, to laugh at, but there are 45 million people <laughs> that have student debt uh, and are paying hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month or preparing to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars a month when the payments resume. So they're trying to f- offer some kind of band-aids on one of the most broken parts of the system. Um, and it's just absolutely incommensurate with the, the scale of the problem. And even if the scheme worked as it was supposed to, like, you know, making someone pay for 20 to 25 years is still, is still you know, committing them to decades of, of debt. Right. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not exactly relief, right? So. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think that's, I think that's exactly right, that there's, there's sort of, two, you know, the, the program has two failures. One is the operational failure, which is that it's just an absolute, like, bureaucratic shit show in the federal government doesn't really know what the services are doing. The federal government is like, we're not keeping track of this. The services are keeping track of the payments and the servicers who are, you know, private financial companies that are making plenty of money off of this are saying, uh, well, we're not, you know, we thought this was the federal government and everybody just kind of keeps passing it back and forth. And and the people who suffer (laughs) are of course the borrowers. Um, So there's, there's the operational failure and then there's, you know, I think what you're gesturing to, which is the, 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 the sort of moral failure or the conceptual failure that, that the premise of the program is that, you know, I, your, people's earnings will eventually go up such that they will be able to pay back these loans. And that's just not, <laughs> that's just not the labor market that we live in. And it hasn't been the labor market that we've lived in for, for, for decades. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, we can see this as the the you know i think one thing that's important to sort of think about in the student debt picture is that the actually the fastest growing demographic of student debtors are people 60 and above so the fact that you know the, the, in some ways that's a function of the pro, these sort of failed programs like idr that that people are not actually able to ever retire these loans um, and they carry with them f- through uh, the life course it was only certain people who qualified for the income driven repayment scheme, right? You do have to qualify for it. It's very, it's sort of, it it has all the trappings, all the problems of means testing that you have to sort of annually submit papers to show your income is in a certain category. And you have to kind of go through all of this bureaucratic rigmarole. Um, And so actually what you see happening is that some of the people who would benefit the most from income driven repayment who actually have the lowest incomes are the least likely to apply and actually access this program you know it's like an opt in system and you have to be willing to kind of make your way through this this byzantine uh system. Um, and, and that tends to be people, there's some really interesting research that shows that tends to be people that have higher incomes. Um, so it ends in, dif- in, in effect, it becomes kind of a, a regressive cancellation that the people that are actually getting their loads a little bit lightened by this program are the, the people that tend to have higher earnings. And even if you were part of that program, like over the course of 20 to 25 years, if people are still stuck in debt, like that's still going to be eating away at their financial security, right? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. 
we let's talk about some of the, like the material impacts of debt, right? I mean, we have don't we have research on what people have put off or Yeah, there was some interesting there was a, a study that just came out recently about the kind of like, you know, delayed life choices that that people are making in terms of people are pushing off when they might get married or have kids or save saving for retirement is like, that should be a stand-up act. Like just saying that is a stand-up act, <laughs> like saving for retirement, who can do that? The, the truth is, is that a lot of times, you know, this program of like, okay, we can, after 20 or 25 years, this, you're enroll in this program. And after making, you know, good faith payments for 20 or 25 years, your debt will be canceled. A, it just doesn't happen. Um, because of all these bureaucratic failures and B it's also, it's, it's a lot of times people are making like pretty low payments and their interest is so high that their balance is going up and up and up so that people who borrowed a few thousand dollars in 1980 are seeing, you know, six figure loan balances now because of, um, negative amortization. Uh, and that has real effects in terms of when people are retiring. There's, um, um, about a hundred thousand people roughly every year, uh, who have their social security garnished due to student loan, uh, outstanding student loan balances, which is, um, kind of criminal, uh, in, in my mind. <laughs> the idea, the idea of, of paying for college with your post-retirement yeah, social security benefits. Yeah. It's like kind of perverse. Yes. Yes. And that recently was paused until conveniently, December 2022. 20, uh, so um, if we make it through this round of midterms, there's in a few months that will most likely resume. In terms of advancing the demand for free college for all, would that actually require an act of Congress, though? I imagine that Congress could do something, though we have seen also states doing uh, some version of free, co- like free community college and things like that. Is that sort of a, a long-term goal? Yeah, I think ultimately for the federal government to invest in public higher education and make it free for all, I think that will need to be an act of Congress. Um, and this was, it's actually been on the table. It was, there was legislation drafted in 2019. There was legislation drafted in 2020. I mean, this is like, we're not talking about something that's, you know, sending, building a colony on Mars. There's legislation already drafted. No, and we're talking this, about that too. Somehow. I mean, yeah, that, right, exactly. For we, There's a few people that we can relocate there. Uh, but, you know, this is like, it's, it's, it's just, it exists in other countries. It exists in this country up until grade 12. Um, so I think it is more of a, but, but as you say, it's, that's, that's the, the longer term uh, strategy. I think between now and August, and certainly between now and the midterms, um, student debt cancellation is a an important, winnable issue. So the Debt Collective sort of has its roots in Occupy Wall Street, and it has um, a broader agenda that relates to the abolition of debt writ large, right? Um, sort of on a global scale, um, and on sort of every institutional level in society. So can you talk a little bit about why the cancellation of student debt would be sort of maybe the first step towards a world without debt? So when we start to think about like debt, um, things that we're going into debt for, um, as Eleni mentioned, uh, you know, we have medical debt, housing debt, carceral debt, oftentimes for wrongful uh, imprisonment. Um, so people are paying for debt 
for things that are just things meant to help us survive. Whereas if we, you know, we could reinvest money um, into public services and public goods. Um, and I think that education is a great first start with that um, because you cancel student debt, you prove that it boosts the economy. And then we move back to a publicly funded model. Um, and that's just the first step in, in showing people that actually funding our public goods as as public goods for us um, does benefit us uh, writ large. I think probably the next battle would be medical debt um, on a massive scale just because so many people have that. Um, and then that, I think, would be tied closely with, you know, Medicare for all. So I think that when you cancel debt, there also has to be, you know, what is the solution? What is the alternative? Uh, when we cancel student debt, we have, you know, public funded higher education. When we cancel medical debt, we have Medicare for all. When we cancel carceral debt, we start to rethink the prison industrial complex as a whole. When you cancel one debt, it just opens up that conversation to be had about the unjust um, dynamics of other types of debt as well. Eleni? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes people say like, well, you can't cancel student debt because after that, what are you going to do? Cancel medical debt? <laughs> cancel housing debt? And our response is, hell yeah. <laughs> like, you with us? You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Amy Schneider and Eleni Shermer with The Debt Collective. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. And this week for ARG, I'm talking about trains. Regular listeners know that I've been doing a series of interviews on the supply chain, and I haven't reached train drivers quite yet. So naturally, I was fascinated by this piece from Aaron Gordon at Vice's Motherboard titled, What Choice Do I Have? Freight train conductors are forced to work tired, sick, and stressed. I'm just going to read from the beginning because it's pretty intense. Quote, two weeks ago, a BNSF freight train conductor who asked not to be named so he could speak freely about his experience fell asleep on duty while the train was moving. He knows it's a fireable offense, not to mention an unsafe practice that potentially endangers not only his own life, but those of others near the tracks. But he couldn't help it. He fell asleep, he told Motherboard, because of the punishing attendance policy the railroad enacted in February, called HIVIS, a point system that requires workers to be on call upwards of 90% of their lives, depriving them of any semblance of a non-work life. The worker provided Motherboard with recent documents verifying his recent work schedule. At the start of February, workers got 30 points. Taking time off almost always costs them between 2 and 15 points. They can only earn points back by being available for work with 90 minutes notice for 14 consecutive days, meaning they can't go out of town, schedule doctor's appointments, or go to a movie. Use all 30 points and they get suspended and given 15 more points. Use those 15 points and they get suspended even longer and given their last 15 points. Use those and they're fired. End quote. The point system naturally leads to workers choosing between sleep and work, family and work, rest, all of those things, doctor's appointments, funerals, you know. The driver in the piece resorted to taking 600 milligrams of caffeine pills, about six cups of coffee's worth, enough to make me nauseous just thinking about it, but it didn't help. Gordon notes that, quote, freight train conductors can't listen to music, books on tape, or do anything else that could potentially help them stay awake, end quote. 
The story is one of several that Gordon has done about the freight train system, and he was contacted after the first by 45 former and current BNSF workers and their families about working under the system. Quote, to a person, they spoke of the same difficulties living under the high-vis scheduling system. Basic needs like sleeping, going to the doctor, and seeing their spouses and kids now seem to them impossible tasks. Workers have had to choose between going to a relative's funeral, causing them to lose so many points that they won't have any wiggle room for future emergencies, or skipping it and going into work. Stress and fatigue levels were regularly reported as at all-time highs, both by workers themselves and their families, and many worry about the safety of the railroads, which are a major method of transportation of hazardous materials. Also, it just occurred to me that sleeping for more than 90 minutes is kind of required to stay sane, healthy, and functional, and that sleeping for less than two-hour stretches is a torture method that, among others, Americans have used. Anyway, dealing with any family situation means nickel and diming with your points for these drivers. Gordon notes, quote, workers are finding it difficult to manage family tragedies. Jay had to use 15 of his 30 points to attend his brother-in-law's funeral. Only brothers, sisters, parents, children, spouses, and spouses' parents are covered under BNSF's death-in-family policy, according to a copy of the High-Vis Attendance Program guidelines obtained by Motherboard. And even such a death results in only three days off, which is generally not enough time to mourn, make arrangements, and hold a funeral. As a result, he couldn't take days off for his kids' birthdays or his 20th wedding anniversary. He would have to work three straight months without any scheduled days off to make those points back. Literally, I risked losing my job to comfort my sister and her kids after her husband's suicide, Jay told Motherboard. It's unconscionable. End quote. What's more, these essential workers are essentially prevented from doing anything about this problem. Gordon writes, quote, Conductors and engineers are represented by two unions, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, BLET, and the Sheet Metal Air, Rail, and Transportation Union, Transportation Division, or a SMART TD. These workers have been in contract negotiations with BNSF for three years. Before HIVIS went into effect, BNSF sued to block the unions from striking over HIVIS. A federal judge agreed, blocking the unions from taking any action, including picketing, slowdowns, sick outs to protest the new policy, meaning the unions can't do anything to fight it. End quote. Workers also had concerns, of course, about potential disasters involving trains that carry hazardous materials. What happens if a train conductor falls asleep on a train carrying, say, oil or flammable chemicals and it derails? The company is due for a federal government oversight hearing this month, but it's disturbing to think that workers can be pushed to this level of abuse without any right to fight back. It's also indicative of a broader trend toward upping the work hours and the pressure to be constantly on call that we're hearing across industries, from retail to food manufacturing to freight. So we will have more on trains soon, I promise. And my pick for ARG is Out of the ER, Into the Street by Mo Tkacic in The Lever. Doctors are often seen as a rarefied professional class, treated as highly compensated elite practitioners who are at the top of the food chain in the healthcare sector. But as healthcare grows into more and more of a business and less and less of a public trust, doctors are finding their jobs increasingly degraded, destabilized, or even eliminated altogether as the profit motive comes to dictate the operations of many hospitals. It's even happening at the ER. While the emergency room has long been seen as a more publicly focused facet of the hospital infrastructure, a lot of ERs are starting to be managed more like commercial enterprises. 
And as such, the labor of physicians is increasingly monetized as well. Tukasik takes us into the corporate machinations of one such ER at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, or VMC, in San Jose, California. It's here in the heart of Silicon Valley that emergency care has been subcontracted to the private equity firm U.S. Acute Care Solutions, or U.S. ACS. It's a private equity firm, but the company markets itself as a kinder, gentler kind of private equity firm because it is technically doctor-owned, in the sense that doctors can buy shares of the company. But what U.S. ACS actually does to doctors who are in its employ shows that the myth of employee ownership is a slick fig leaf for the neoliberalization of emergency medicine. Once upon a time, Tukasik writes, quote, ER doctors prize their unique ability to ignore both politics and profits and treat patients in order of the severity of their condition, regardless of their insurance status. But companies like U.S. ACS changed all that. Over the past decade, the percentage of ER doctors working for small independent practices has shrunk by more than half to just 20%. And the corporate consolidations have led physician wages to stagnate, even as billing surged. Then came COVID-19, which caused an abrupt plunge in ER traffic that left many doctors temporarily downsized at the very moment their skills were needed most. Across the country, many ER doctors are privately arriving at the same conclusion that inspired the U.S. ACS uprising. I'll get to that in a minute. It's no longer enough to help people by treating one ER patient at a time when the real emergency appears to be unbridled corporate greed. At Valley Medical Center, the firing of a highly respected medical director, Jeff Chien, set off a series of events that got workers angry and motivated to organize. The first move, not surprisingly, was led by nurse and union leader Alan Kamara. Quote, Kamara helped VMC's ER doctors do something no other physicians like them had ever attempted to do, organize. The doctors, with Kamara's help, wrote letters to hospital leadership and the board of supervisors detailing some of what they believed to be USACS's worst abuses. They enlisted more than 200 VMC employees to sign a letter formally protesting the ouster of their boss. They showed up at county board of supervisor meetings, pushing to terminate its contract with the private equity group. And on January 25th, they staged a, quote, walkout to protest the private equitization of their profession, waving signs saying, quote, we can't trust USACS, unquote, and, quote, we need a strong team, unquote. But their protests have so far largely been ignored. Meanwhile, reports have emerged of ER physicians experiencing the kind of pressure that is more often associated with factory workers on assembly lines. Tukasik writes, quote, the doctors had handled a 20% surge in patients with a 40% reduction in assistance. The physicians said they had done so by trying to avoid going to the bathroom, staying hours after the technical end of their shifts, and begrudgingly making patients wait even longer before receiving care. At the same time, wages were being cut so drastically that on certain shifts, physicians were making less per hour than the average nurse there, with none of the county benefits, like generous pension funds, that often kept nurses from bolting for cushier gigs, unquote. Moreover, the shady financial dealings of USACS and one of its main private equity backers, Apollo, may also end up further eroding doctors' economic security because the value of the shares they own, according to some financial projections, could well be wiped out in the next few years, making their quote-unquote ownership essentially worthless. The plight of VMC staff speaks to the broader inequities at every level of the healthcare system that the pandemic has exposed, from the patients to the surgeons. The workers deemed most essential for public health are also prime targets for profiteering and privatization. 
But now physicians appear to be embracing their proletarianization and organizing to change their sector. An online network called Take Medicine Back has become a forum for frustrated physicians to discuss collective action. Tocastic reports, quote, in recent online discussions, members of the group have discussed the merits of sharing contracts and pay stubs among employees, called on colleagues to refuse to work for volume-based bonus structures that reward physicians for taking on unsafe patient loads, and floated the idea of approaching Amazon labor union leader Chris Smalls, who helmed the recent historic labor victory at a Staten Island Amazon warehouse, and asking for advice on how to design a new kind of worker organization, unquote. What form that organization takes will likely depend on whether a critical mass of doctors start to see themselves more as workers than bosses and become willing to stand up to the financiers who are upending their career and eventually to organize the way that their nurse colleagues have been doing for generations. The pandemic may have destroyed the illusion that many ER doctors had been clinging to in the era of neoliberal healthcare, that they're irreplaceable and indispensable. As vital as doctors are to the healthcare system, for many, it's big business that's really in charge. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kilnaborough for making us sound good. And you can get all of the archived episodes of Belabored at DescentMagazine.org. And we'd love it if you could chip in to support our independent journalism at our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash belabored. We're approaching a full decade of doing this kind of reporting, and it's now more important than ever that we have independent outlets covering what could be a real breakthrough moment in the labor movement. So please consider supporting us. We'd also love it if you could leave us a positive review at your podcast platform of choice that helps more people find us. And of course, we want to hear directly from you with any questions, comments, or any other feedback for our show. We want to hear from you if you're a student debtor currently considering going on strike, or if you're an Apple worker looking to unionize your store, or a Starbucks worker, or an Amazon worker, or any worker looking to make change in an industry where unions haven't had a big presence. And if you are part of the wave of budding undergraduate labor unions, we want to hear from you too. And if you're a nurse on the picket line, we definitely want to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us directly at belabored at magazine.org. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.